We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to sneak back into last week's passage just a little bit, so verses 5 through 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5 through 18, page 965 in your pew Bible, if you uh, need to grab a copy there. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 18. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary. Um, I don't like repeating jokes, but I really wanted to make a joke that this, uh, this sermon is titled, If You Want to Go to Heaven, You Have to Join a, a Home Group. But I said that in the first service, so that was me kind of destroying the joke. Uh, the title, actually, of this sermon is Bearing Death, Manifesting Life, which is probably not the most exciting thing to hear, um, that in many ways that is the call to the Christian to bear death in order to manifest life. That's what I want to talk uh, about this morning. Uh, My name is Joel. I am on staff here at Calvary. I was not originally scheduled to be preaching today, but COVID struck again, uh, and so we made a little change. And in many ways, it seemed natural to ask me to preach on this text, because as I write my dissertation right now, most of my time is committed to, to doing that. This text is one of the most important texts to what I am arguing for and talking about. But that means it's going to be pretty intense in many ways. So my dissertation topic, what I'm focusing on, is trying to answer the question, what role does suffering play in the church's fulfillment of her mission? Really, what role has suffering always played in how God has chosen to make himself known in the world? And my argument is that it's very central. Suffering plays a very central role in what God has called his people to do. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. But I want to begin somewhere else, which is with the Lord of the Rings. So this past week was a big week for Lord of the Rings fans. As Amazon's highly anticipated miniseries, The Rings of Power, finally released its first two episodes 
I talked to Gerald before the service, and he told me he wasn't super impressed with the first two episodes, which I disagree with that, but honestly, I don't think I'm as big of a fan as he is. I did stay up very late on Friday night watching it by myself as my wife was working. But so far, I'm a fan. One of the things I'll be looking for, or be curious to see if they include in this, since this, these are not really things that Tolkien wrote himself, one of the things I've always loved about Tolkien's storytelling is his intentional undermining of expectations of where to find strength or where to look for hope. So this is actually a consistent theme throughout his writings, but it's probably seen most clearly in The Lord of the Rings, and I'm not going to spoil The Lord of the Rings if you're worried about your kids being in here and having room for them, but there are these halflings or these hobbits, particularly Hob uh, Frodo and Sam, who display the greatest amount of strength. Shockingly, in that entire story, they are the one who everyone looks to for hope to save the world. And that's surprising when you think about the other characters that are involved in Lord of the Rings. You think it ultimately would be in, in Gandalf, or Legolas, or in Aragorn, but really, actually, it's in these small little creatures, Frodo and Sam. That's where you need to find the ultimate strength. That's just not what we would expect. We would not expect to find such remarkable strength, such remarkable hope, placed in something that looks so weak and so insignificant. And I love that because that's just so different than most of the things we read today or most of the movies we go and see. Like, think about the Marvel movies, okay? Those who are strong or those who look strong are strong. Like, surprise, surprise, there's a giant green guy with huge muscles, and he's like the strongest of all of them. Or there's a guy who has a hammer that no one else can pick up. Oh, he's really incredible. And they're the heroes. The rest of us regular folk, the weak ones, all need to look to those who look strong because they are strong. That's where we find our salvation. Everything is as you expect. But in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien kind of reverses it. He's trying to undermine how we think about it. And what's fascinating about that, at least as far as I understand, is that many believe that this is one of the places where Tolkien was weaving in elements of the gospel into his writing. Whether or not he realized it or not was intentional. He was very against intentionally putting things in. Like He actually didn't really like the Chronicles of Narnia. He thought it was too obvious. But many look at this element, kind of undermining our expectations of saying it's there. You can see the gospel in this. That Tolkien seemed to understand that the way that God saves us, the way he's chosen to reveal himself to us, to care for us, and to give us hope, a hope that's greater than anything we could ever imagine comes in very unexpected ways. That God has actually revealed himself and his power in what is almost hidden. That he brings us life through death. That he saves us and gives us strength through what appears to us to be weak. Do you believe that's true? And that God has done that for you? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning in this text. Because in this text, Paul is seeking to undermine the Corinthians and our expectations of what God's apostles or ministers should look like. But he is doing that not just so that we would look at ministers correctly, but because our expectations of what God's ministers would look like is indicative of what we expect God to do for us in our lives. If we think that God's apostles or his ministers should look impressive, it's actually because we think that that's what God should do for those he cares for, those whom he loves. But what I want to show you is that God has actually already given you what you need. 
He has already provided the hope and the life we all require. He has given us his glory. And he sent his apostles and ministers to show us that glory. But because that glory is not what we'd expect, the lives of those apostles and ministers often look different than what we would expect. Because they are meant to reveal to us that what we need has been given in Jesus. That the strength we all require has come through one being nailed to a cross. And that is the salvation and actually the evidence of God's love that the world needs to see. And that's what I'm trying to show you as we look at this text. But I need God's help. So let me pray first. And then let's dive into the text. So please pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you for your spirit. And I pray right, right now, Lord, that's what this would be about. That your spirit would enable me to open our eyes and understand your word so that we actually might know your son better. May he be exalted. And not just for the sake of singing songs here, Father, but so that we actually might imitate him with our lives and take hold of him and know him and love him because that is how you have loved us in the most remarkable way. And it is marvelous, it is wonderful. So I pray right now, Lord, that this would be about you and be gracious we use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to begin by reading from verses 5 through 7 of our text. So look with me, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verses 5 through 7. This again is on page 965 in the Pew Bibles. Paul says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Okay, as Gerald actually just mentioned, last week we already did look at verses 5 through 6. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time looking at them. But I included them this week because this section of 2 Corinthians is so incredibly dense that any kind of part that you look at, you can only understand if you see it in the flow of what Paul has already been saying. So we need to review a little bit of what Paul has been saying in this entire section to really get the power of Paul's point here. Because, okay, as we've been talking about, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, which is a church that he founded, but who is currently doubting Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. Basically, they are doubting that Paul is truly someone who has been legitimately sent by God to spread God's good news. And the reason they are doing this is because they have been influenced by another group of ministers called the super apostles. That's what, but I don't think they call themselves that, but Paul calls them the super apostles. And these super apostles had come to Corinth and utilized cultural assumptions to convince the Corinthians that God's apostles or his ministers should look and be impressive that they should be those whose ministry is primarily marked by success, not suffering, strength, and not weakness. Basically, they were arguing that Jesus suffered for us in such a way that God offers us comfort now from all our afflictions. He offers us this really great life right now so that if someone's a minister of the gospel, they should manifest clear, external, and visible glory. And they had likely utilized and leaned on the ministry of Moses for support of what they were saying. Because when God ministered to Israel, to his people through Moses, Moses' face would literally shine. 
Okay, this is something that Gerald talked about last week. Because Moses was in the presence of God, when he came out, his face would like glow so clearly. It was this visible display of glory. And so Moses actually would veil. And so the argument of the super apostles was that if that's true of Moses in the old covenant before Jesus ever came, how much more true should that be of ministers of the new covenant who have Christ, the ultimate salvation from God? Just as Moses displayed visible glory, so much more should new covenant ministers display this visible glory. Now, I want to make sure that we recognize the strength of that argument. Because honestly, it's very strong, which is why this section of 2 Corinthians is so incredibly dense. Paul has to work really hard to counter what they are saying. But the reason their argument is so strong is because it's so full of truth. Okay? Like Paul, the super apostles are arguing that God is the God of comfort. That's how Paul actually begins 2 Corinthians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. They're saying the same thing. Furthermore, like Paul, they believe that new covenant ministers should display more glory than old covenant ministers. Paul actually agrees with that. So much so that in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, that's exactly what he says. Okay, so if you look at just the end of those verses, verses 10 and 11, look what Paul says there. So chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, talking about the old covenant ministry, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, because of new covenant glory. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. Paul is actually claiming there that the ministers of the gospel have a permanent Better glory, one which surpasses that of the old covenant in which Moses ministered. And so you see, there's a lot of truth to what the super apostles are saying to the Corinthians. But then if that's true, what's the, where's the problem? If there's so much truth in it, where are they wrong? Why is Paul trying to counter what they're saying? Well, the problem is actually the expectations. The problem is that the super apostles and the Corinthians are all looking at the wrong thing in order to see that glory. You see, that's actually why I said earlier they are building on cultural assumptions when they make their argument. Okay, let's just think about it from our point of view for a moment. When you hear me say that those who preach the gospel, those whom God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, those whom he has set aside, his people, that those people possess an even greater glory than Moses, whose face was literally shining. What do you think the average person would expect their lives to look like? What would you assume your life would look like if you possessed even greater glory than Moses? Would you assume or expect that it would involve persecution? That your life would be marked by afflictions, anxiety, sickness, suffering, difficulties? Would you be someone who is considered weak to the world and often acquainted with pain or hardships in your life? The answer, of course, is no. That's not what we'd assume or expect. Even though our assumptions could be different than the Corinthians, what we would agree on is that if you possessed more glory than Moses, that your life would not be marked by suffering. We'd be looking for something else. 
And yet the problem is that that's exactly what Paul's life looked like. You see, that was the problem. The super apostles were building on these assumptions and expectations, and it was causing the Corinthians to doubt Paul's legitimacy. They thought they knew what to look for when trying to see God's greater glory. And so Paul is having to work hard to push back against this. But what I want us to get and see is that Paul's argument against them is not that the super apostles were wrong about us having more glory today than Moses did. They weren't wrong about that. We do, as Christians, possess more glory than Moses did. What they were wrong about, and what I think we often struggle to recognize and remember, is exactly what that glory is. Because what is the glory that we possess? What's the glory that's far greater, that is permanent, that surpasses that of Moses? Well, it's not what we would assume or expect or what Corinth would assume, but rather, it is Jesus Christ himself. It's the hope of the gospel. It's actually something that's already been given to you. It's Jesus crucified and risen again. It is God with us through the work of the Son and the Spirit. And that is what Paul's talking about in verse 6, which I read before when Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the glory of God is Jesus. To look at God's permanent eternal salvation glory, the greatest gift he's ever given you is not to look at some aspect of your life. It's to look into the face of a crucified Savior who rose again. And Paul has been set apart to bear witness to Jesus, to manifest him. And so he says in verse 5, what we proclaim, it's not ourselves. It's not something about my life. It's not something about me. It's Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We are your servants so that you might know Jesus, not so that you would be impressed with me. Yes, true ministers of the gospel have been set aside to reveal Jesus, the permanent, life-giving, eternal glory of God, which is Jesus in Jesus alone. In other words, contrary to what the super apostles were saying, Jesus did not suffer for us. He did not suffer for you so that he could relieve us of suffering right now and give us the glory of some kind of impressive life. But rather, Jesus died and rose again for us to give us himself. That's, that's really important for us to get. Because what that means, and I get, I get that this is a really obvious point, but I think it's something that's really easy for us to kind of get twisted in our minds. What that means is that if you want to know if God loves you, if you want the hope that he's given to you, the glory that he's bestowed upon you, you can never confuse that with something other than Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. If you want to know that God loves you, you look to the cross, not to something within our lives. As Paul says earlier, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. Through Jesus and the gift of his spirit, we have been given everything we could ever need. I mean, do you believe that? I, I think it's one thing to like know that, Gerald and I actually were talking about this after the first service. It's one thing to like know that in your mind, but to feel that. I even feel weird saying it. But we're, we're going to sing after I preach, what gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There's nothing God could add on to that. For in him, we know we've been forgiven. 
and so have the sure and eternal hope of rising from the dead to be with God forever. And because this has already, already been accomplished by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can know for certain that this is something that can never be ripped away from us. No matter what happens in your lives, no matter the pain, no matter the affliction, no matter the persecution, or the sickness, or the anxiety, or the suffering, if you have Jesus, you've got everything. And nothing can touch that. Now what that does not mean is that earthly glory or those earthly goods are necessarily bad or wrong. Okay, they, they aren't. God does often graciously give us those things to enjoy. God does sometimes heal us. He gives us good gifts now, enable our lives to be better than they could be. To some, he grants lucrative or especially enjoyable jobs. He provides wonderful relationships, whether through family, friends, or spouses. He gives good gifts such as children or remarkable skills or talents or crazy opportunities not enjoyed by most. God does those things for us. But those things should never, ever be mistaken for the hope or for the glory given to us or even promised to us by God through Jesus Christ. And those things should never be considered evidence of some kind of special blessing or anointing from God. Making more money is not evidence of greater blessing by God. Having the job of your dreams is not evidence of greater blessing from God. Having a bigger church is not evidence of greater blessing from God. Being a dynamic speaker is not evidence of greater blessing from God. Having more kids or more put-together family or the spouse of your dreams is not evidence of greater blessing from God. But having Christ, knowing the crucified and risen Lord, the God who died for you, is to possess the greatest blessing God could ever give. And that's because the ultimate, permanent, life-giving glory of God, which has already been given and offered, comes through Jesus and his death and resurrection. And you see, ultimately, that was the horrific problem with the super-apostles' argument. And it's why Gerald told us last week that we all, and especially ministers of the gospel, should veil our earthly, temporary glory. Not because those things are wrong, but because they can be a distraction. They can actually confuse us into thinking that we are promoting those aspects of our lives as what God has promised to us, as the ultimate hope given to us by God. But you see, that is so true, okay, that what Paul moves on to explain in our text is because of that reality, because earthly glory can distract us from seeing the true and ultimate glory of God, God gives the hope of the gospel to Christians and especially to apostles and ministers of the gospels whose lives are marked by the opposite. The opposite of earthly glory. Because in doing so, they displayed the power and hope of Jesus Christ to the world. See, that's what Paul is saying in verse 7. That God, because we can get distracted into thinking, oh, look how impressive that person is. That's what I need. Because we can get distracted by that, God gives Jesus to those whose lives we would not covet at all. So he can clearly show us what we actually need, which is Christ. You see, that's what Paul's saying in verse 7. So right after he, he says that he preaches Christ, not himself that he veils good things about his life and just puts forward Jesus because God has given him the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He then says in verse 7, but 
we have this treasure. That is the treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The hope of the gospel. We have that treasure in jars of clay. That is in frail, weak bodies. Lives that are marked by pain and suffering and difficulty. Yes, we have this permanent glory in that which is weak. In that which breaks to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Because this is a shocking and remarkable explanation of how God has chosen to make himself and Jesus Christ known in the world. Because the hope of the gospel is not a better life now. It's not immediate relief from suffering or the gift of wealth or pleasure or sex or marriage or children or enjoyable and coveted life. The things we would expect. But rather because it's about an eternal sin-forgiving, death-defeating, oppression-reversing glory that comes to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. God has chosen to give the treasure and hope of Jesus to apostles, to ministers, to missionaries, and regular Christians whose lives don't look at all like we would expect, whose lives we would not want, but whose joy we can't quite understand because then we can't get it twisted. We can't get it confused as to what they're actually offering to us. What kept Paul going? What about the other apostles? Why did they keep on preaching Jesus Christ with joy? Certainly, it could not have been because God had given them the desires of their heart. That things were just so enjoyable as an apostle. No, you read about their lives and you're like, I would not want that at all. No, they were constantly afflicted. They were perplexed. They were persecuted. They were struck down. They were those who essentially carried in their bodies Jesus' death. As if they were given over to death for Jesus' sake. And Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians, they've been put on display for the world to see as those who are the scum of the earth. And yet, they kept going. They kept preaching Jesus. They kept talking about rejoicing, all the joy they had, as Paul does in Philippians, until they were killed. Why? Well, it's because of what it says in verses 13 through 14 of our text. When Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Yes, we keep preaching Jesus amidst all the afflictions, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus raised us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It's because of what Paul says in verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Yeah, what kept them going? Why do they keep living for Christ and preaching Christ? How do they keep having this joy? It's because they actually knew what they had in Christ. It's because of the hope, because of the permanent, eternal, salvific, life-giving glory given in Jesus. And they recognized it so deeply that nothing could touch it. They had something that no matter what happens, can't be taken away. And so when they went through the pains of life, it couldn't take away their resolve. When they suffered, it couldn't touch their joy. They did not lose heart because of the, the gift of Jesus. And so Paul can say in verses 8 through 10, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, 
but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You see what Paul is doing here, how he's pushing back against the super apostles' argument. Do you see it? The Corinthians, this church that Paul loves and has cared for, they're doubting Paul's legitimacy because of his weakness, because of his suffering, of the persecutions and afflictions that he has had to endure. They're asking, where's the glory, Paul? Where is, as I'll talk about in my class starting next week, where's the good life? If you've got Jesus, if you have God on your side, why aren't things better? But Paul is saying, how could they get any better? I've got Jesus. He is the good life. He is the glory. You're looking for the wrong thing. And I've been set apart by God to show you what that glory is. Don't you see? I'm not losing heart. My joy is not taken away amidst all the suffering, the persecutions, afflictions. And that's because I still have him. And he is more, far more than anything else I could ever have. You see, this is why Paul says that in verse 11, for we who live, so we who live in Christ, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. If you remember earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that you are our letter of recommendation. You are the one who actually proves I'm legitimate. The reason why he's saying that, he's like, you guys believed me, so you show that I am legitimate. But why do they believe him? Paul's actually saying here in part that it's because of his sufferings. That part of the reason they trust in Jesus is because of the wretched life Paul seemed to live. Because when he bore death, they saw life. He would bear death in order to manifest life. And I just... This is not in my notes, but I think it's just important to recognize this is what God has done throughout history. Those whom he has set aside often bear in their life God's agony over his world so he could save others. Think of Joseph. Joseph, chosen by God. But what is his life like? Filled with suffering. Why? Well, Joseph says at the end, so that he could save the very ones who caused his suffering. Now, God was with Joseph all along. Joseph got God the entire time. But he was set apart by God for the sake of the other. Jonah is very similar. Jonah, chosen by God for the sake of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to do it. And so God punishes Jonah so that God would actually forgive and not punish Nineveh. Jonah actually bears it in himself so that God can keep extending his grace to more and more and more. Paul's saying, that's happened with me as well. I've been chosen, and so I suffer so that you would know Jesus. I think the church has been chosen for that very thing as well. To bear in our lives death in order to manifest life. Now, we need to think about the implications of this. And I want to begin by making sure that I clarify here that Paul and I am not valorizing suffering here. Okay, Paul isn't saying suffering is good, nor is he saying that the job of what we're supposed to do for ministers or those who seek to bear witness to Christ is to pursue suffering. It's that suffering is the end goal here. There's actually an interesting caution we need to have with how we apply this. Because what can happen, and this actually happened in the history of the church where we have this kind of obsession with martyrdom, 
is that we can come to adopt the same problem as the super apostles, but just from the opposite angle. Meaning that you could hear what I say today and come to believe that a true apostle or minister of the gospel needs to display certain levels of afflictions or suffering in your life in order to be legitimate. And that is the same lie as the super apostles. It just substitutes one form of glory for another. It's not saying, hey, if your life is really impressive, that's not the glory. But if it's really awful, that is the glory. No, remember, what is the glory? It's Jesus. Jesus is the glory. The glory that, that true ministers must display then is Christ as Lord. Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. Paul's point is that to display that clearly, God often takes us through hardships while enabling us to cling to Christ. But our role then is not to pursue suffering, it's to pursue Jesus, to cling to him. Not to go out and say, what's the hardest thing I could possibly do? That must be what God wants me to do. What God wants you to do is know his son. Know Christ, cling to him. As you cling to him, God will take you through difficult things so we can display Christ more clearly. But our role is to pursue Jesus and making him known. He is the true gift to us and to the world. The second implication I want to discuss concerns how we view gospel ministry and gospel ministers in general. Now, as I mentioned, and as I'll talk about more in a moment, I believe this call to bear death in order to manifest life is not unique to the pastorate or gospel ministers. That is a call given to all people who are in Christ. All those who have Christ are called to bear witness to Christ. And yet, what is clear is that throughout history, and still now, God has given gifts in the form of people to the church, certain individuals to model that cruciform life most clearly so that all the church would follow their lead. That's what Paul did. God gave Paul the gift of Christ so that Paul could be conformed into Jesus' image and show Christ to the church. But while, of course, Paul and their apostles were unique in many ways, that general pattern still stands. God has called certain ministers certain workers, pastors, missionaries, ministry leaders, to reveal Christ to us so that we might come to know Jesus and follow their lead. What that means is that we need to make sure that we are not falling into the same trap as the Corinthians and judging these ministers because we don't see certain forms of glory. Or from the other side, assuming a certain pastor is walking faithfully with God because we do see certain forms of glory outside of Jesus. So I've been a pastor for almost a decade. And I can't tell you the amount of people who have assumed that I am doing well with the Lord and I'm being faithful to God, who have assumed that I am a good pastor because they felt like I was a dynamic speaker. They assumed I was fine. They assumed I was actually being faithful because they enjoyed listening to me speak in front of them. That's a very dangerous thing to assume in a pastor. And as a pastor, that is a horribly dangerous thing for me to hear. And it messed with me often because I was like, I must be okay. I don't need to really pursue the Lord, pursue my people, just speak in front of people in a dynamic way or something, and it's great. But this is a common thing that we see throughout the American church in many ways. Many of you, I'm sure, listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If you did, what was the sentence that was used to defend this one pastor? So he displayed characteristics over and over again that should disqualify him from ministry. And yet one sentence was needed to defend him. Look at the fruit. Look at the glory. How can we not have him in the pulpit? 
Again, that's a scary thing for us to start assuming that if you grow a church big, it must mean that God is with you. Perhaps some of you have had to process Pastor Gerald telling us that a couple summers ago, he essentially had an anxiety breakdown. And should a minister of the gospel really experience something like that? Well, the point is not that that particular experience of suffering proves he is legitimate. Instead, we should look to that and ask, in the midst of his afflictions, was he crushed? Was he perplexed, but not driven to despair? Struck down, but not destroyed? I think the answer is yes. And why is that? Because of Jesus. In fact, he came back here and said, I want to give more of Jesus to the church. And that's the point. You see, when we see ministries grow, we're talented and impressive pastors. Or when we see churches die and pastors struggling, we should not assume one is good and the other is bad. Instead, we should ask, what's being revealed here? I think it is just true that often when churches die and yet that pastor clings to Christ, that congregation holds on to the hope of the gospel, then what we are seeing far more clearly than when a church just explodes with growth is the gospel. Because why else would you have joy in the midst of all of that? Now, again, we shouldn't just assume it's fine. We should be looking for Christ. That is what the church is meant to reveal. And that's the third implication I want us to process. As I mentioned before, bearing death and manifesting life, it's not just something that Paul is talking about for apostles or ministers of the gospel. It's for all of us. This is something that Paul is always trying to show the churches that he writes to. His life is on display so that we might imitate him as he imitates Christ. It is we, we who have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. So let me ask you, how do you judge whether or not God loves you? What do you look to to know that God cares for you? I know for myself, often, constantly, I struggle to not look at just circumstances in my life. Are things the way I want them to be? But really, what we need to, rem we need to remember is that it's Jesus that shows us that God loves us. But that means then that whatever you have going on in your life right now, if you have Christ, God has not held back from you. There isn't something he needs to add on in order to show you his love. He's given you his son. And we need to cling to that. And when that happens, then I think we can actually do what Paul's talking about here. Then when we face afflictions, we won't be crushed. Then when we're perplexed, we won't be driven to despair. We can be struck down and not destroyed. We can bear death to manifest life. But that's not because God doesn't love us. The fact that God has chosen the church for bearing witness to the world, which means we will go through difficult times, doesn't mean that God doesn't love us because he's given us Christ. And so what we ultimately need to do with a sermon like this is go to him. Is actually remember and seek to know more clearly the love of God that's been displayed for us in Jesus Christ. As we will sing in a moment, what gift of grace is Jesus our redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. We should seek to be a church that knows that, feels that so clearly, so that when God takes us to the difficult times, what we display to the world is we don't need these earthly goods because we have been given everything and there's nothing more for God to give because he's given Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. That in him we have indeed been given everything. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself. Lord, that we would actually know this so clearly. And not, not just in our minds, we feel it in our heart. 
I pray this would be the thing that we would encourage one another with, that we'd constantly point our brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ, and in so doing, we would display to the world that there is hope amidst the pain. There is hope amidst the suffering. I pray that now as we go to the table, Lord, that you would confirm this hope within us, that we would know that as surely as we can taste this bread, as surely as we can taste this wine, that's how sure we can be that you love us because you've given yourself to us in Jesus Christ. When we know that so clearly, may we honor him because of it with our whole lives. May we honor you now, rest this service. In Jesus' name, amen.